ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So continuing with Kitab al-Tawheed, today we come to the chapter where al-Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala says, Babu fadli al-Tawheedi wa ma yukaffiru min al-dhunub. The chapter regarding the virtues of Tawheed and what it expiates from the sins. The virtues of Tawheed and what it expiates from the sins. <coughs> Somebody want to read them? Want to read? Read. <coughs> بفضل التوحيد وما يكفر من الذنوب وقول الله تعالى الذين آمنوا ولم يلبسوا إيمانهم بظلم أولئك لهم الأمن وهم محتدون أن عبادة بن صامت رضي الله قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من شاهد أن لا إله إن الله وحده لا شريك له وأن محمد عبده ورسوله وأن إيس عبد الله ورسوله وكلمة القاهلة مريم روحا منه والجنة حق والنار حق أدخل عذر الجنة على ما كان من الأمل أخرجه ولهما في حديث أتبان رضي الله عنه فإن الله حرم على النار من قال لا إله إلا الله يبتغي, يبتغي بذلك وجه الله وعن أبي سعيد رضي الله مرفوعة قال موسى يا ربي علمني شيئا أذكرك وذؤك به قال قل يا موسى لا إله إلا الله قال يا ربي كل عبادك يقولون هذا قال يا موسى لو أن السماوات السبعة وآمرهن ويري والأرادين السبعة في كفة ولا إله إلا الله في كفة مالت بهن لا إله إلا الله رأى ابن حبان والحاكم وصححه وللترمذي وحسنه عن أنس رضي الله قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول قال له تعالى يا ابن عادم إنك لو أتيتني بقراب الأرض خطايا ثم لقيتني لا تشرق به شيئا لأتيتك بقرابها مغفرة So this chapter now then the chapter regarding the virtues of Tawheed and what it expiates from the sins. <coughs> the reason why this chapter comes here now is because previously we have gone through the basic meaning of Tawheed and we have gone through the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us 
for the purpose of worshipping him upon Tawheed, this chapter then encourages a person further to implement and to practice Tawheed by explaining the virtues of Tawheed and explaining how Tawheed wipes out your sins. So the chapter, it is connected and you'll see that all of the chapters of Kitab al-Tawheed, they are connected one to the next. There is always a logical progression why one chapter comes after the other one. So here in the opening section, we had learned the purpose of our existence. We had learned it is to implement Tawheed. We had learned that the prophets and messengers were sent with that message of Tawheed. Then after that, the Shaykh now encourages us further to learn more about Tawheed by telling us about the virtues of Tawheed and the goodness Tawheed brings for you and how it wipes out your sins. So that is what the Shaykh will mention in this chapter with the evidences that are quoted. The first evidence quoted is the ayah الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمِ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Allah says, those who believe and do not mix their iman with ظلم they are the ones who have the safety and security, and they are the ones who will be rightly guided. Those who have iman and do not mix it with dhulm, oppression, then they are the ones who will have the safety and security, and they are the ones who will be guided. This particular ayah was mentioned after the debate that Ibrahim alayhi salam had with the mushrikun of his time. The mushrikun of his time, they used to worship the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon in the land of Iraq at that time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent to them Ibrahim al-Khalil alayhi salatu wasalam in order to call them back to Tawheed and for them to abandon their shirk of worshipping the stars and the sun and the planets and the moon. And there was not a single Muslim at that time when Ibrahim salam was sent to them, there was not a single Muslim amongst them. They were all upon their idol worship, all of them upon their shirk. And so Allah mentions to us in the Qur'an the debate that Ibrahim salam had with his people 
وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ لِأَبِيهِ آزَرَ When Ibrahim began with his da'wah to his own father Azar, began the da'wah with his own father, calling his own father to Tawheed, the closest of the people to him. وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ لِأَبِيهِ آزَرَ أَتَتَّخِذُ أَصْنَامًا آلِهَا إِنِّي أَرَاكَ وَقَوْمَكَ فِي ضَلَالٍ مُّبِينٍ When Ibrahim said to his father, Do you take idols as gods? Indeed, I see you and your people in a great misguidance. You take the idols as your gods? Indeed, I see you and your people in a great misguidance. And in some of the other ayat, وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَا إِبْرَاهِيمَ رُشْدَهُ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَكُنَّا بِهِ عَالِمِينَ إِذْ قَالَ لِأَبِيهِ وَقَوْمِهِ مَا هَذِهِ التَّمَاثِيلُ الَّتِي أَنْتُمْ لَهَا عَاكِفُونَ in some of the other ayat, it mentions the same thing, how Ibrahim salam said to his father and their people, what are these idols of yours that you are doing i'tikaf at? Akif, it means in Arabic, when you stay somewhere, sitting somewhere, stuck to that one place. He said, what are these idols that you are doing i'tikaf at? You're sitting there stuck to these idols of yours. What is this i'tikaf you are doing in front of your idols, at your idols? وَكَذَلِكَ نُرِي إِبْرَاهِيمَ مَلَكُوتَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ أطلعه الله سبحانه وتعالى على ذلك من أجل أن يؤهله لحمل الرسالة والدعوة إلى الله عز وجل والمناظرة وليكون من الموقنين الموقنين بالله سبحانه وتوحيده ويزول عنه أي شك أو أي ارتياب أو أي شبهة يكون على وضح اليقين فلما جن عليه الليل يعني غشى عليه الليل بظلامه رأى كوكبا قال هذا ربي من باب المناظرة وليس من باب النظر كما يقول الفلاسفة أو علماء الكلام لأن إبراهيم يعرف ربه من قبل كما قال تعالى ولقد آتينا إبراهيم رشده من قبل So when Ibrahim عليه السلام was debating with his people and calling them to Tawheed and warning them against shirk he used certain arguments on purpose on purpose not because he didn't know on purpose he used certain arguments to convince them and explain to them that the worship of all others besides Allah is wrong. So one of the arguments he used with them was, فَلَمَّا جَنَّ عَلَيْهِ اللَّيْلِ رَأَى كَوْكَمًا قَالَ هَذَا That when the night engulfed and encompassed everything, it became night, and he saw a star, so he said, this is my Lord maybe. On purpose, on purpose, saying that in front of the mushrikun, that maybe this is my Lord then. 
فَلَمَّا أَفَلَ But then when the star disappeared, قَالَ لَا أُحِبُّ الْآفِرِينَ He said, I do not like the ones that disappear. Highlighting to them that the stars cannot possibly be the Lord. They cannot possibly be the Lord, the Creator. They cannot be the one that you worship because they disappear. They are there to be seen for a while, but then they disappear. The stars are not there 24 hours a day. They come and they go. So he highlighted to them, I do not love the ones that disappear. Meaning, how can it be that I worship something that is only there some of the time and disappears other parts of the time? Highlighting to them and making them think that this is a point. How can that be the God? And it is only there sometimes and disappears other times. And similarly, uh, it goes on with all of the other examples as well. فَلَمَّا رَأَى الْقَمَرَ بَازِغًا قَالَ هَذَا رَبِّي يَتَدَرَّجُ شَيْئًا فَشَيْئًا فَلَمَّا أَفَلَ يعني غَابَ وَانْتَقَلَ Then he said to them again, that I do not love the ones that disappear, because the example he gave them afterwards was the moon. He said, maybe the moon is my Lord. Again, on purpose only, to highlight a point to them. Ibrahim salam was upon Tawheed and he knew. But he was saying this as a form of argument to highlight the truth to them. So he said, what about the moon then? Maybe the moon is the God. But again, when daytime comes, the moon disappears. How can something that disappears and goes away be the Lord? Surely that cannot be the Lord. It is there and then it goes and disappears. And the same type of example with the sun. All of these examples Ibrahim salam gave to them to highlight to them the stars, the sun, the moon, all of these things. None of them can possibly be your Lord. How can they be your Lord, the moon? And the daytime comes and somebody says, where is your Lord? Your Lord has disappeared. The sun is your Lord. Nighttime comes and your Lord is where? Disappeared. It cannot be that these things are your Lord. They are there and then they disappear. The moon is there at the night, gone in the day. The sun is there in the day, gone in the night. So he highlighted to them, this is not from the characteristics of Rububiyyah. This is not from the characteristics of the one who created the heavens and the earth, who has control over all of the universe, but he's only there sometimes and gone sometimes, disappeared sometimes. That cannot be the Lord. So he was highlighting this point to them. And that was one of the means that he gave them da'wah. And everybody knows the story of Ibrahim salam and the destruction of the idols and the fire that they built for him. Upon all of that basis, this ayah was then revealed. الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ Those who believe, they have iman and do not mix it with any dhulm. Then they are the ones who have their safety and security, and they are the ones who will be rightly guided. There is something in the sunnah 
about this particular hadith, and that is that uh, about this uh, ayah. When this ayah was revealed, that those who have iman and do not mix it with any zulm, oppression as we may say in English, then they will be guided and have the safety and security of paradise, etc. When it was revealed, some of the companions became very worried. They became concerned because they were thinking to themselves, who from amongst us never falls into some oppression and dhulm? That everybody now and again may end up doing some dhulm here, some oppression or wrong there. So they were concerned that the ayah is giving the promise to those who have iman, but do not mix it with any dhulm. They said to the messenger, but who from amongst us never falls into dhulm? That all of us, we may fall into some oppression sometimes, some wrong sometimes. They were concerned. So then the Prophet ﷺ explained to them which type of dhulm this ayah is talking about. And that was the dhulm of shirk, not the other forms of dhulm. Because there are different types of dhulm, different types of what you may say oppression. One type of dhulm is the dhulm, the oppression that occurs between a servant and his lord. That is the dhulm of shirk. And the ruling upon that type of dhulm, if you do it and die upon it without seeking forgiveness or repentance, is that it will not be forgiven. And you will be punished upon it. Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk with him. So the one who commits that type of dhulm, the dhulm between himself and his Lord, the dhulm of shirk, and dies upon that, not having sought repentance or forgiveness, then that will not be forgiven, and he will be held accountable upon that on the day of judgment. The second type of dhulm is the dhulm that occurs between a person and another person. The dhulm that occurs between a person and other people. And that is many forms. Dhulm between a person to other people. By stealing, by backbiting, by storytelling, by all types of evils that may occur from a person to other people. You are committing dhulm against them. And if a person does this type of dhulm, you do the dhulm against other people and die without ever seeking forgiveness from it, then what's the ruling on that type of dhulm on the Day of Judgment? Take your um, good deeds away if you wrong someone. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure until you have uh, paid them back. Okay. 
So this type of dhulm, if a person does dhulm to other people, takes their rights, and then dies never having sought forgiveness from that, then the ruling, in terms of a ruling, is that it is not forgiven. Until some justice is done on the day of judgment then. It will not be forgiven. Rather, you are held accountable upon it. And justice is done on Yawm Al-Qiyamah regarding it. And there is the hadith regarding how when the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, أَتَدْرُونَ مَنِ الْمُفْلِسِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Do you know who the bankrupt one is on the Day of Judgment? They said, قَالُوا مَنْ لَا دِرْهَمَ وَلَا دِينَارَ لَهِ They said, a, a person who doesn't have any gold or silver, doesn't have any money, dirham, dinar, that is the person who is bankrupt. The Prophet ﷺ said to them, لَيْسَ كَمَا It is not as you think. That's not the bankruptcy on the Day of Judgment, having no money. The bankrupt one on the Day of Judgment was described as a person who does worship. He does his worship. He did worship, prayer, fasting, zakat, he did it. But at the same time in his life, he would take the rights of other people. He was doing worship, but he had a bad character lying about this one, backbiting that one, hitting this one, stealing from that one. He used to take the rights of the people. So then the messenger told them on the day of judgment, all of those people, they will come to take the justice back from him, to get justice. So they will come and start taking his good deeds. They will come and start taking his good deeds from him, one by one, all of the ones he oppressed, until all of his good deeds run out. But there are still people left who he had oppressed, so then how do they get justice? Well, uh, then they give the, him the bad deeds. Then they will give some of their own bad deeds to him. That is justice as well. Then remove bad deeds from yourself on that day and cast them upon him. So that is the bankrupt one on the day of judgment. So that is the second type of dhulm. The dhulm that occurs between a person and other people, the oppression that you do to other people, and all of this type of dhulm is prohibited. The third type of dhulm is the dhulm that occurs between yourself and yourself. Between yourself and yourself. How can you do dhulm to yourself? Sinning. Sinning is a dhulm, is an oppression against yourself. Because by sinning, you are putting yourself in line for punishment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So you are oppressing yourself. You're oppressing yourself by sinning because you are now putting yourself in line for punishment on the Day of Judgment. And so by putting yourself into that position, 
whereby you may be punished on the day of judgment, you're oppressing yourself, oppression upon yourself by committing those sins. And what is the ruling on that one though, that type? A person who commits the oppression against himself, what's the ruling on that type of oppression on Yawm Al-Qiyamah? Under the will of Allah. So that, uh-huh, so that can be mentioned as Tahta Mashi'atillah. It is under the will of Allah. That maybe Allah will punish you upon those sins. And maybe you are forgiven upon those sins. As for major sins, there's more of a discussion between the scholars on major sins. Some of the scholars say you will be punished upon them, held accountable upon them until you are cleansed of them. But others say even the major sins are tahta al-mashi'ah. But maybe you are forgiven and there can be lots of reasons for forgiveness on the day of judgment from the uh, difficulties and trials and tribulations that occur on that day, then it may expiate something from you from the intercession that occurs on that day, how the believers, they intercede for other believers, how the angels, they intercede, how the prophets, they intercede from the intercession. Then some of your sins are removed and so there can be reasons that you may be forgiven on that day. Perhaps by the mercy of Allah, you are forgiven on that day. But otherwise, maybe you are punished for those sins. So that is the three types. Those are the three types of the dhulm which can occur. The first type was the serious type, which is the dhulm that occurs between a person and his Lord. So when this ayah was revealed, those who have iman and do not mix it with dhulm. Dhulm could be to yourself, it could be to other people, and it could be shirk. So when the companions heard this ayah, they were concerned because it may mean the types of dhulm that are to yourself or to other people, those types, everybody ends up falling into them somewhat here or there. So the companions were concerned and they went to the Prophet wasallam, and they said to him, Ayyuna la yadlimu nafsah? Who from amongst us does not oppress himself? We all fall into dhulm here and there. So then the Prophet wasallam, told them that the dhulm here is what is mentioned in the Qur'an in another place, إِنَّ الشِّرْكَ لَظُلْمٌ عَظِيمٌ إِنَّ الشِّرْكَ لَظُلْمٌ عَظِيمٌ Indeed, shirk is a great dhulm. That is what is being mentioned in the ayah. Those who have iman and do not mix it with shirk. Do not mix it with dhulm meaning do not mix it with shirk on that, uh, uh, in their actions. So then what is for those people? Ula'ika lahumul amn. For those people, they will have the safety and security. And this amn, this safety and security is two types. This amn, this safety and security is two types. 
And I recall sometimes there are certain things, certain points you never forget. This particular ayah in this particular chapter of Kitab al-Tawheed, I recall from a Sheikh Ubaid al-Jabiri when he was doing this explanation and he got to this ayah at this point and he said there are two types of the aman, there are two types of the safety and security. One is the, the complete safety and security, the absolute safety and security, and the other is a partial safety and security. An absolute safety and security and a partial safety and security. The absolute safety and security means those who have iman and did not mix it with shirk. So they were absolutely upon tawheed and they were not upon any form of shirk. And even if they fell into sins, they repented. For those types of people, they have the perfection of security that they will not be in punishment on that day. Absolute security that they will not be punished on that day. But the partial security, part security, is for the people of Tawheed. They were upon Tawheed and they abandoned shirk, but they fell into other sins and they were sinners upon tawheed and abandoned shirk but they fell into other affairs they then have partial security meaning because they were upon tawheed and they abandoned shirk then they have the security of eventually entering paradise but they don't have the security prior to that, which is that they may be punished for the other sins and wrongs that they did first. It is possible that a believer may be punished initially to be cleansed from the wrongs and the sins that he had done. And then once he is cleansed and purified from those sins and that wronging, that he is then entered into paradise. So if that occurs, it is only a partial security. You have the security of paradise dying upon Tawheed and no shirk, but only partial security because before that you may be punished. So they say that the complete security is that you will not be punished on that day. And the partial security is a believer who was upon tawheed but he committed sins and other affairs that make him liable for punishment and so he may be punished initially before being entered into paradise so that is what is mentioned here that they have safety and security the people of tawheed have the safety and security of knowing that if you die upon Tawheed not committing shirk, then for you is eventually 
paradise. And then it also mentions in the ayah, وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ And they are the guided ones. Al-Hidayah, in this case, also twofold. There is guidance in this world and in the afterlife. Guidance in this world from Allah and guidance in the afterlife. Guidance in this world, the meaning of them being muhtadun in this world, that Allah keeps you guided upon the straight path. Allah keeps you guided upon the straight path, the path of tawheed, the path which is abandoning shirk. You are kept safe and secure and guided upon that path in this world. And in the afterlife, you are guided to paradise. You are guided to paradise in the afterlife. So this is mentioned that them being guided is in this world and in the afterlife. The people of Iman and Tawheed. They have guidance here and they have guidance in the afterlife. Guidance here upon the straight path, upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and guidance in the afterlife in terms of being guided to paradise in the afterlife. So, you see from this ayah, the virtues being mentioned for the people of Tawheed. Those who are upon Iman, upon Tawheed, and they do not mix it with shirk, then for them is safety and security, and for them is guidance in this world and in the afterlife. And those points there, they are tremendous virtues in and of themselves, to have the safety and security from the punishment of Allah, and to have the guidance upon the straight path, and to be protected and guarded from innovation and deviation and bid'ah, these are great virtues and great rewards for the one who is upon Tawheed. Then after that, the Shaykh mentions the hadith an Ubadah ibn Samit radiyallahu anhu qal, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من شهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأن محمدا عبده ورسوله وأن عيسى عبد الله ورسوله وكلمته ألقاها إلى مريم وروح منه والجنة حق والنار حق أدخله الله الجنة على ما كان من العمل So in this narration in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the Prophet said, whoever testifies to La ilaha illallah, that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah, he alone without any partners, and that Muhammad is his servant and his messenger, and that Isa is the servant of Allah and his messenger, and the word that Allah cast upon Maryam, and the soul from him, the spirit from him, uh, is all true. And that paradise is 
true and hellfire is true, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will enter him into paradise upon whatever action he is upon. This hadith again begins with highlighting some conditions for the virtues of Tawheed. That if a person testifies that there is none deserving of worship in truth except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He alone without any partners. That part of the sentence, Wahdahu la sharika is an emphasis. It is tawkid, an emphasis to la ilaha illallah. Wahdahu la sharika And he testifies that Muhammad is the servant and messenger of Allah. Both of those parts are very important to testify that Muhammad is the servant and messenger of Allah. Servant of Allah, therefore refuting the people who go into extremes and they begin saying that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam does not die and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was made out of light and they claim all types of claims regarding the messenger in raising him above his status. Nowadays, to this day, you hear of them in some of the mosques when they pray taraweeh, and they put a chair in the corner of the mosque, empty chair in the corner of the mosque in Ramadan when they pray taraweeh, and they say, this chair is where the Prophet comes and sits and watches us pray taraweeh. The Prophet ﷺ, they say, he comes and sits on that chair and watches us pray taraweeh. So then you say to them, if the messenger is there, then should he not be leading the prayer? All of these types of falsehoods they have and incorrect aqidah they have, incorrect beliefs they have in raising the Prophet ﷺ over and above what we have been informed of in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So we say, no, the Prophet was not made out of light. He did not walk without a shadow. He is not the one that you make dua to. He is not the one that you call upon. He was a servant of Allah. He ate, he drank, he slept, he married, he died. He was a servant of Allah, but not like any other servant. He was superior to the other servants in terms of being the messenger of Allah. So we affirm both sides. He was a servant of Allah, not going into any exaggeration and extremism, We're not saying he walked without a shadow and he was made out of light and all of these types of false claims. No, he was a servant of Allah. But we do not fall into negligence regarding his rights. He was though the messenger of Allah and the final messenger of Allah. So we fulfill the rights to the messenger in obeying what he came with and avoiding what he prohibited and believing him in what he informed us of, 
and worshipping Allah how He taught us. We fulfill those rights because He is the Messenger of Allah, the final Messenger. And that therefore refutes the other extreme of the people, the ones who, for example, the Qur'aniyun, they abandon the Sunnah, and they do not accept the Sunnah, and they only say, follow the Qur'an, that's it. They neglect the role of the Messenger, and the Sunnah, the Hadith, so we do not do that. We say, he is Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah. So this is the correct and balanced understanding. You testify Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is a servant of Allah, as Allah called him in the Qur'an, but he is the best of mankind, a messenger selected by Allah, the best of all of the messengers, and the superior of all of mankind. And in that way, you have balanced and said the correct statement regarding the Prophet And then also, وَأَنَّ Isa and that Isa alayhi salam, he is also a servant of Allah and his messenger. Isa alayhi salam is also the servant of Allah and his messenger. So this also now highlights our correct belief and understanding when it comes to Isa alayhi salam and in fact all of the prophets and messengers, that they were all servants of Allah, but they were all selected by Allah, and given the revelation, and chosen for that prophethood, and so they have a station of elevation, they, are st- they have ele- elevation over and above all of the rest of mankind in that regard. They are elevated above us because they were chosen by Allah for revelation, for prophethood, for messengership. So we testify that Isa alayhi salam also is the messenger of Allah and is a servant of Allah. And both of these are connected. Because the people, they exaggerated regarding Isa alayhi salam. And they began saying that Isa alayhi salam is God himself. That Isa alayhi salam is one of the trinity. They began making all types of statements of exaggeration regarding Isa alayhi salam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said... لا تطروني كما أطرت النصارى عيسى بن مريم. Don't raise me to a level over and above that is correct. Don't raise me to a level like the Christians did with عيسى عليه السلام, because they raised him to a level where they began to say he is God. Raised him to a level over and above being the servant of Allah. Over and above being the messenger of Allah. Raised him to al-uluhiyyah. He is the one to be worshipped to. He is a part of God too. So the messenger told us, لَا تُطْرُونِي كَمَا أَطْرَةِ النَّصَارَ عِسَى بْنَ مَرْيَمْ Don't raise me 
like the Christians they raised Isa السلام, to the level where they began calling him God. So with the prophets and messengers we say they are the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but that they are the messengers of Allah, the most noble of the creation. And from the best of the messengers, Isa السلام, and Muhammad وسلم, the best of them all of course, فَلَا يُتَسَاهَلُ فِي حَقِّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ لَكِنْ لَيْسَ مَعْنَ هَذَا أَنَّنَا نَغْلُوا فِيهِ وَنَجْعَلْ لَهُ شَيْئًا مِنَ الرُّبُوبِيَّةِ فَلَا إِفْرَاطَ وَلَا تَفْرِيطَ So with the messengers, we neither go into exaggeration on one side, nor negligence on the other side. Neither exaggeration on one side, raising them like the Christians did with Isa, and neither negligence on the other side where we don't give them their rights, and we don't obey what they told us, and we don't stay away from the prohibitions that they gave us. So it is that balanced affair with the prophets and the messengers, including Isa alayhi salam mentioned here, وَأَنَّ Isa Abdullahi wa rasuluh. Isa is the servant of Allah and his messenger. And also it mentions about the word that was cast upon Maryam and the soul from him, the spirit from him. The word that was cast is talking about how Isa salam was born. We know that Isa salam was born without, without a father. He was born by the word, meaning when Allah said, Kun bi, when Allah said bi, kun, kun. So upon that word and the soul that was cast upon Maryam, that soul and upon that word, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Isa alayhi salam and he was born without a father and this is from the miracles that Isa alayhi salam was born without a father but then also we know in the Quran it mentions an example between Isa alayhi salam and Adam alayhi salam because Adam alayhi salam was born without a father or a mother and then Isa alayhi salam was born without a father so Whoever testifies to all of that, testifies that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah, testifies Muhammad is the servant and messenger of Allah, testifies Isa salam is the servant and messenger of Allah, and that he is the word that was cast upon Maryam salam, and also testifies that paradise is true, it is the truth, it is reality, and hellfire, it is the truth and reality, and that is something we know from the aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, paradise and hell, they are in reality places of existence, and that they have already been created 
as opposed to some of the people of innovation who believe that paradise and hell have not yet been created. And from their philosophy and their logic they say, people are going to enter into paradise and hell after the day of judgment, the accountability. So they say in that case, there's no need for paradise and hell to be created now. It's going to be created on that day when the people's accountability occurs and they are going to enter it. But that is from their philosophy and their logic. We know from the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, paradise and hell have already been created. And there are narrations about the Prophet ﷺ seeing them and about the people who would be punished in them. And there are examples of that many ahadith. Regarding that, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned something regarding paradise and hell. They are a residence that everybody will go to. Either paradise or hell. You will be in one of those residences. That is one residence. Paradise or hell. The residence before that is al-barzakh. The life of the grave and the residence before that is earth, this world, this dunya. So Ibn al-Qayyim said that there are three residences. Ad-Dur, Thalaf. Three places of residence. Al-Ula, Darul Dunya. Wahiya Darul Amali wal Iktisab. The residence of this world. This is your opportunity to do your deeds and your actions and to earn that righteousness and goodness for yourself. Secondly, الدارو الثانية دارو البرزخ وهي دارو القبور برزخ بين الدنيا والآخرة لأن البرزخ الفاصل معناه الفاصل The meaning of the word البرزخ in Arabic means a barrier, a fossil, a barrier between two things. Just like it is mentioned about the seas and the waters and the salt water, the fresh water, the barriers between things. Barzakh is a barrier between the life of this world and the life of afterlife. Between this world and the afterlife, the fossil. The barzakh is that in-between barrier. So that life is then known as the life of the grave, as we call it, Al-Hayatul Barzakhiyyah, the life of the Barzakh. And there are amazing affairs that occur within it, from the blessings of the grave and the punishments of the grave. Either it is a pit from the pits of the fire, or it is a garden from the gardens of paradise, and the deceased will remain in that barzakh 
up until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala resurrects them and brings them forth for their accountability. Then the third residence, like we said, الثالثة دار الجزاء التي هي يوم القيامة الجنة أو النار وهذه الدار لا تفنى ولا تبيد أبدا The third residence will be on the day of judgment after the accountability either paradise or hell either paradise or hell will then be the third place of residence and that place of residence لا تفنى ولا تبيد أبدا it will never become extinct it does never finish paradise and hell you will then remain in those places forever those who enter them upon remaining within them they will remain within them forever and they will not come to an end the paradise and the hell so this is again a clear refutation of the ones who claimed that there is no resurrection as they said about the uh, the kuffar the kuffar they said وَقَالُوا مَا هِيَ إِلَّا حَيَاتُنَا الدُّنْيَا نَمُوتُ وَنَحْيَا وَمَا يُهْلِكُنَا إِلَّا الدَّهْرِ They said, it's just this worldly life we have. We live, we die, and nothing kills us, destroys us, finishes us, except time. You grow old and old and old and old, and eventually you die. Nothing destroys us except time in the end. We live in this life, we live and die. It's just time that kills us. That's what the mushrikun used to say. And they rejected that there would be a resurrection. And so they said, إِنْ هِيَ إِلَّا حَيَاتُنَا الدُّنْيَا نَمُوتُ وَنَحْيَا وَمَا نَحْنُ بِمَبْعُوثِينَ That we have this life of this world, we live and we die, and we will not be, they said, we will not be resurrected. So here in the hadith, it is telling us, one of the points of belief is your belief in the afterlife, your belief in paradise and hell, in the resurrection, in the accountability, in the day of judgment, and that is from the pillars of Iman, that the one who testifies to all of those things, the one who testifies to all of these affairs of Tawheed, testifies to the prophets and the messengers and their status, to paradise and hell, then what? أَدْخَلَهُ اللَّهُ الْجَنَّةَ عَلَى مَا كَانَ مِنَ الْعَمَلِ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will enter that person into paradise no matter what his level of actions are. What does the last part mean there? That Allah will enter such a person who testifies to all of that and practices and implements all of that. Allah will enter him into paradise whatever the level of his actions. What does it mean, whatever the level of his actions? 
the level of his actions about the servant. Sort of. That's one answer. That Allah will enter such a person into paradise, whatever his level of actions. Meaning that even if his level of actions are not great, they are not a great amount, but he was a person of Tawheed, testifying to all of this Tawheed, implementing it, practicing it. But he may not have been from the greatest of worshippers in terms of his actions and abundance of actions. But he will be entered into paradise. Entered into paradise even if his level of worship overall was little. He was a person of Tawheed, upon Tawheed, implementing Tawheed, abandoning shirk, upon Iman, Aqeedah. So he enters paradise anyway. The other meaning of it is that's what we're saying with this first one basically. That even though his actions may be less or more, he will enter paradise because he was a person of Tawheed. But there's another meaning to this too. So what does he mean? Allah will enter him into paradise, whatever his level of action. That's the other meaning. That the person will be entered into paradise dependent on the level of his actions. The greater the actions, the greater the level in paradise. And the lower the actions, the lower the level in paradise. So either it's talking about the levels in paradise based upon how many actions he had, or it's just talking about the fact that even if he had little actions, he was a person of Tawheed testifying to all of this. And from the virtue of that is that he will enter paradise then. He will enter paradise even if it's after punishment, even if it's after cleansing. He will enter paradise because of this Tawheed he was upon. So here in these opening sections, the Shaykh is highlighting very clearly the obvious virtue of Tawheed, which is that a person who dies upon Tawheed, abandoning all forms of shirk, then for that person is eventually, if not initially, it will be for him paradise. Because the people of Tawheed enter paradise. And the people of shirk enter hellfire. Then you have, وَلَهُمَا فِي حَدِيثِ اعْتْبَانِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ حَرَّمَ عَلَى النَّارِ مَنْ قَالَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَبْتَغِي بِذَلِكَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it haram upon the hellfire to take anyone who says La ilaha illallah sincerely. Desiring by that the face of Allah, meaning sincerely. The one who testifies to La ilaha illallah but like we've said before, it's not just saying it, it is also believing in it and acting upon it. The one who testifies to La ilaha illallah, believing in it and acting upon it, sincerely, يَبْتَغِي بِذَلِكَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ 
he desires by that the face of Allah, meaning sincerely, then what is the reward of that? Allah makes it haram for the hellfire to take such a person. That such a person will not enter the hellfire, such a person enters paradise. And then the final uh, sections, عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال قال موسى عليه السلام In this narration it is mentioned that Musa alayhi salam said Ya Rabbi, O oh my Lord, علمني شيئا أذكرك وادعوك به Teach me something that I can do remembrance of you with and I can supplicate to you with قال Allah said, قُلْ يَا مُوسَى Say, O Musa, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ قَالَ يَا رَبِّ كُلُّ عِبَادِكَ يَقُولُونَ هَذَا Musa alayhi salam says, But my Lord, all of your servants, they say this. قَالَ يَا مُوسَى لَوْ أَنَّ السَّمَاوَاتِ السَّبْعِ وَعَامِرُهُنَّ غَيْرِ أو لَوْ أَنَّ السَّمَاوَاتِ السَّبْعِ وَعَامِرَهُنَّ غَيْرِ وَالْأَرَضِينَ سَبْعَ فِي كِفَّةِ وَلَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ فِي كِفَّةِ مَا لَتْ بِهِنَّ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ رواه ابن حبان والحاكم وصحها In this narration, it is mentioned that Musa alayhi salam asks Allah for some supplication that he can recite and remember Allah by and praise Allah by so Allah says to him, say, La ilaha illallah. Musa says, but all of your servants, they say that. But then Allah highlights to him the, the level of this statement, the greatness of this statement by saying, if all of the heavens, the seven heavens, meaning the inhabitants of those seven heavens, other than me, and all of the seven earths were on one side of the weighing scale, and la ilaha illallah was on the other side, then la ilaha illallah would outweigh all of the seven heavens and the seven earths and all of their inhabitants from amongst them. Malat bihinna la ilaha illallah. That statement would be greater than all of the seven heavens and the seven earths and their inhabitants. So this is to highlight the point once again regarding the greatness of La ilaha illallah. It is a bit like the hadith, hadith al-bitaqah, the, the hadith of the bitaqah as they call it, when a man will come on the day of judgment and he will have 99 scrolls, 99 scrolls, when you roll them out, they go as far as the eyesight can see. 99 of them. All of them filled with evil deeds. So then it will be said to him, Alaka hasana. He will say, La ya Rabbi. It will be said to him, Do you have any good deed? He will say, No, my Lord. But then it will be said, Bal, عِنْدَنَا لَكَ hasana, That you do actually have a good deed. So then, this bitaqah, this card as we say, a small thing is brought out with La ilaha illallah on it. So then his 99 scrolls of evil deeds are put on one side, 
and La ilaha illallah is put on the other side, and La ilaha illallah outweighs all of the sins. And the scholars, they say, perhaps, perhaps, it was that he lived a life of uh, disbelief and sinning and wronging, but then at the end of his life, he testified and died upon Tawheed, so that Tawheed wipes out all of his sins. Al-Islamu yajubbu ma qablahu, At-Tawbatu tajubbu ma qablaha. Tawbah and Islam, they wipe out what comes before it. So the La ilaha illallah wipes out and overweighs all of those sins. And the final narration here, وَلِلْتِرْمِذِي وَحَسَّنَهُ عَنْ أَنَسْ سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَقُولُ قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى يَبْنَ آدَمْ لَوْ أَتَيْتَنِي بِقُرَابِ الْأَرْضِ خَطَايَا ثُمَّ لَقِيْتَنِي لَا تُشْرِكُ بِي شَيْئًا لَأَتَيْتُكَ بِقُرَابِهَا مَغْهِرَةً In this narration it says that the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah said, so this is a hadith Qudsi, that Allah said, O son of Adam, Yabna Adam, if you were to come to me with an earth amount of sins, and then you were to meet me on the day of judgment, not having committed shirk though, an earth full of sins, huge amount of sins, but no shirk in them, then I would come to you with an equal amount of forgiveness. Meaning that all sins can be forgiven if a person dies upon Tawheed, not committing shirk. Shirk is the sin that cannot be forgiven. Shirk is the sin that cannot be forgiven. But the hadith is highlighting if you have not committed shirk, and you have died upon Tawheed, it can, it can expiate all of your other sins, that it can expiate all of your other sins, and so people on that day may be forgiven by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of the Tawheed that they died upon. So these narrations, the point of them is to highlight the virtue of the person who is upon Tawheed, how it can wipe out your sins, it overrides your wrongs and your evils, and that paradise is guaranteed for the Muwahidun, the people of Tawheed, even if they've committed other sins that are not shirk, and they are cleansed upon them first, they are maybe punished upon them first, some of them, even if that happens, eventually they still have the security of being given paradise because they didn't die upon any form of shirk. They died upon tawheed and other sins. So they may be forgiven and even if they are cleansed, they will still have the security of paradise because paradise is for the muwahidun. No muwahid, muwahid who is not upon shirk, no muwahid will stay in the hellfire forever. The muwahidun are taken out and placed into paradise. So that gives you some of the great virtues and the level of tawheed and what it brings for a believer. The next chapter next time is an extension of this. It's going to give us even more details of the levels you can achieve if you are upon tawheed. 
and one of the narrations next time, uh, it is going to be about people who enter paradise without any accountability. Without accountability, you enter paradise. So that is going to come up in the narrations that follow in the uh, chapter which follows next week. So we'll conclude upon that chapter for today. And this is the method that we'll use, even though you can put a lot more detail into it and make it over two sessions, but we'll summarize in this way, making it a chapter per session to make it easier for everybody to follow through as well. So we'll conclude upon that. There's any questions or anything now you can add? Ashirk al-Khafi will come to it. There's going to be a chapter about it, and we'll talk about Ashirk al-Khafi and these kinds of things in that chapter. It's going to come soon, soon, a few chapters away. So you remember that question, you can ask it again in a few weeks. Um, the, the retribution that will happen between two people um, when one takes his rights, uh, does that include if you take the rights of a Kafir? The rights of the kuffar, um, I, don't, I don't know how it applies because the rights of the kuffar or the general rights of the kuffar, anything on the day of judgment, we know no matter what they get, no matter what is available, a kafir who died upon shirk will still not benefit from it in any way. They will still not avoid hellfire in any way. So Allah alam what the reality is regarding how that occurs between a Muslim and a Kafir. I don't recall reading anything about it. We can look into that further. But what is certain is from the other evidences that a Kafir, no matter what, is available to him, no matter what, on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, none of it benefits them. And they will enter hellfire regardless. Anybody else? Then you've done your part. If you oppress somebody, you do some wrong to someone, and you return their rights, you return their rights, you make tawbah, you have regret over what you've done, you've done all your part. You've done everything you can do. And you can then continue further to make dua for that person. Ask Allah to put barakah in his affairs. Ask Allah to open up his heart to accept your Apology, you can continue with dua afterwards after initially having done everything you need to do by returning the rights and returning any property or goods because a means of returning the rights is returning the goods if it involved stealing, for example. If you wronged somebody by stealing from them, then you can't just go and say, forgive me, you've got to return what you stole from them, their property, their wealth, if you cannot, because you don't know who those people are that you stole from, then some of the scholars like Sheikh bin Baz have said, give in charity the amount roughly of what you stole. And that would be a means of uh, uh, giving the reward back to that person, giving charity on their behalf. 
for the amount that you stole from them if you have no idea how to get it back to them. But you do your part and you make dua for them, there's nothing more you can do after that. Anybody else? Salam. Take something that aids them in that sin. Is that still stealing? So a means of enjoying the good and forbidding the evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a, a, a cousin who goes around every night in a car, robbing people. So you go burn his car or something. No, no, or Enjoying the good and forbidding the evil physically with your hand, like that now, you got a cousin or somebody who smokes, so you uh, take their cigarettes every time you see them lying around, throw them away. You get his lighter every time you see it, throw it away. Physically enjoying the good and forbidding the evil is allowed for a person who has the authority to do it. So the, the father, the husband in the household with his wife and his children is the person of authority in his household he can physically enjoin the good and forbid the evil if one of his children brings something haram into the house he can take that get rid of it dispose of it do what he wants physically prevent that evil occurring you can only enjoin the good and forbid the evil physically with your hand if you are in a position of authority to do so so when the narration says with his hand, only if you have the authority. So the ruler has the authority in his country to stop what he wants to stop, to do what he wants to do. He has the authority. A person in his region, a, a, being appointed, has the authority in the region. A person in his household has authority in his household. A teacher in the classroom has authority. A student comes in with some haram, the teacher can take it off him. So if you have authority, you're allowed to physically... And join the good and forbid the evil. If you don't, you're not in authority over this person. He's a third cousin or something. You've got no right over his property. You don't have the right to just take it. It's technically then just stealing. You don't have the right to physically enjoin the good and forbid the evil. You then move on to the second level. Then you use your tongue. You advise him. You speak to him. You admonish him. And if none of that's working or you can't even do that because he's twice your size, he's going to beat you if you do it. Then the third thing you can do at least is hate it in your heart. Say someone oppresses you. Say you were good to someone and they ended up oppressing you. And then, but you still forgave them for the sake of Allah. Does that mean that you have to continue being good upon them or you could just stop being like... Somebody oppresses you and you forgive them. You'll get rewarded for that because forgiving somebody who oppressed you is an action of worship. It is an action of obedience to Allah. To give that pardoning, that's a good thing and you'll be rewarded for that. Afterwards you're saying what? What your relationship should be with that person? You continue being good to them in terms of giving the rights of a Muslim to another Muslim. You're going to give them salams. You're going to be okay with them. You speak to them. It doesn't mean you have to invite them to your house for dinner. doesn't mean you have to go with them traveling somewhere in their car. You can go with another brother. doesn't necessitate you have to be best friends. But it necessitates that you give the rights of the Muslim one to another. Somebody's oppressed you, they've, even somebody's oppressed you and you haven't forgiven them. Still, if that person is a Sunni, uh, even if that person is a Muslim, still you have to give the rights of a Muslim to a Muslim. If he comes and gives salam, gives salam or other affairs, 
you fulfill and uphold the rights of a Muslim to a Muslim. It doesn't necessitate you have to be best friends. Anything else? No, it depends on the circumstances and the situation enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. It can only be done if doing the enjoining the good and forbidding the evil brings about a greater benefit than harm. You may go into a mosque which is not a Sunni masjid and so they're doing some types of bid'ah in there for example. It may not even be in the maslaha for you to talk to anyone because enjoining the good and forbidding the evil only applies if the outcome is better than the current circumstance. Ibn Taymiyyah gave the example about the people sitting around drinking alcohol. Ibn Taymiyyah Ibn Qayyim in one of the books, they said, if there was a people, a group of people, sitting outside on a table drinking alcohol, some Muslims sitting drinking alcohol, you, for example, have the physical ability, maybe there's a group of you or something, you have the physical ability to grab all of their bottles, grab everything, get rid of it, and stop them from drinking alcohol. So you would be enjoying the good forbidden evil if you did that. If you physically did that, you took their bottles, etc. Maybe you are the people in authority in that area, or you have some level of authority. So you do that. But then now, these drunkards, they've got no alcohol. No alcohol left, nothing available. So they get up, thinking, what shall we do now then? So they go off in their state, and they begin beating people up on the streets and throwing stones in people's houses and looting and robbing. So the amount of evil they've done now is far worse than if they were sat around a table all night drinking alcohol. So in that case, the scholars, they say, if the result is going to be worse than what's already happening, then you don't enjoy the good and forbid the evil in that case, because the result is going to be even worse than what's happening now. So you have to judge every time you enjoy the good and forbid the evil, whatever the circumstance, Firstly, is the outcome going to be something of benefit of maslaha? You go into a mosque that isn't a Sunni mosque, you have to think carefully. Is it any point me going and talking to all these people, telling them it's bid'ah? Then that's it. Tomorrow they'll go tell the imam, they'll ban you from coming into the masjid. You have to think, where's the maslaha? How are you going to do it? You don't just need to approach everybody and anybody and say, that's a wrong, I need to go do it. Not necessarily. It depends on the circumstance and the maslaha and the goodness that's going to come out of it. If you see some commoners, you can try. Try maybe in some way to give them some advice. It could be that you pretend you don't know and you ask them a question. You say, uncle, you know, I saw you doing such and such. I've never seen that before. Is there a hadith or something? You start a conversation and then you realize he hasn't got any hadith, any ayah, nothing, nothing, nothing. So then you can try to explain to him, well, then how can we do that if there's no evidence? I mean, I was going to do it as well, but I wanted to see the hadith exactly how you do it. And he can never provide it for you. So then you start explaining to him, well, in that case, I'm going to stick to something else because I did find a hadith about that. You use wisdom in giving that type of da'wah, giving that, enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. It's not how the people think, you know, somebody's doing something wrong, that's it, you need to go and bash them. Even amongst the Salafis, it's been a, it's always a long-standing complaint that people always complaining the Salafis are too harsh. And you see it amongst uh, uh, each other in the community that you see somebody from the community doing something wrong, from one of the brothers, one of the sisters, and they are from the community, you see them doing something which you know 
is wrong. But you don't just go there and that's it. It's going to be attack. Attack level 100. And you're going to absolutely finish them off. And they never want to show their face in front of you again. If you're sincere in wanting to give advice, then you give it with sincerity, wanting goodness for that person. And I've seen examples of this you know, in real life with the scholars and others where they've seen some of the commoners and they haven't just gone and said, uh, brother, this is uh, haram what you're doing, the Prophet said X, Y, and Z. Rather, you do some of that tact. You have some tact in how you do things. A commoner, you can't just go say to him, this is haram, 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 this is haram, that's haram. He's not going to listen to you. He's going to say, khalas, what do you want me to do then? Walk off. You have to explain in with some wisdom and some goodness in speech, with some, uh, uh, you know, some tact in how you talk to that person, how you bring the evidence to him, show him some uh, uh, methods of evidences and how to use those evidences and how he doesn't work with what he's doing. You have to be careful in, in joining the good and forbidding the evil in how you do it, especially amongst each other. It isn't to go and show that you've got knowledge and I know what you're doing is a bid'ah. Have you not heard about this hadith? When, when you go to somebody, you say to them, what you're doing is wrong. There's the hadith about such and such. He says, which hadith? I don't, you, you don't know the hadith? You've never heard of that hadith? Akhi, subhanallah. You don't know this hadith? Akhi, are you going there to advise him sincerely because you want good for him? Or are you going there just to improve your own status? I know the hadith. I was in the class, Akhi. Sit down, I'll tell you. If that's what you're doing it for, that's how you're doing it, it isn't correct, your intention and your sincerity in how you're doing things. If you want genuine, genuine advice for one another, and you love your, uh, for your brother what you love for yourself, then do things with wisdom and kindness and goodness as you would wish for yourself. And certainly, certainly that's something which would apply to everybody. You think you know something, you've spotted something from someone, then there'll be somebody else more knowledgeable than you can spot a hundred things on you. And they can come and give you 100 level as well. It's not like that. And it shouldn't be like that. So everybody needs to be very careful with enjoying the good and forbidding the evil, not just amongst ourselves, even with examples of other people, commoners, talk to them with wisdom, to bring them into the da'wah, to bring them into studying and knowledge and classes and the true methodology. We'll conclude upon that. It's uh, 50, once it goes past the 50 mark, it's, it's the red zone, that's it, finished. So inshallah ta'ala, we'll resume next week after Isha.